Oh my gosh, Crypto, for a first-time reader, was this book intense or what? This book, I think it broke me. <laughs> We've done some short stories, and this is my first novel of hers, and I didn't think that she could break my heart anymore, but with a novel, she was able to do that. <laughs> this book is a multi-decade experience for our main protagonist, Janie. And I'm still trying to figure out how Hurston crammed all of this information into this book. Let's get into breaking down this book today in terms of some plot, some ana uh, some analysis, discussion. We, we got a good one planned today. Their eyes are watching you, Una. I mean... <laughs> this book would really help when you have a biography such as Wrapped in Rainbows or her own autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, to kind of really bring out some of the meaning. Because while I think it's very easy for a lot of people to talk about some of the obvious symbology such as the pear trees and the mules i think knowing where it comes from in zora's actual life i think brings a lot more value to it so i'd like to kind of go through that with you today crypto since i know you haven't read uh, any of the biographies out there i believe correct no i've not read any of the actual biography i looked a few things up here or there because i thought that oh there's got to be more to this there's just too many subtle nuances that feel real and not just something that's fictionalized and I think that knowing those pieces from one of the biographies would be tremendously helpful to just pulling out a few of those nooks and crannies that are going to be benefiting in why maybe she wrote Janie the way she did, why she put Janie in these situations, and what ultimately happens to Janie towards the end of her life. Right. And I think you, you hit it on the head there, too, where some people talk about how Janie is Zora Neale Hurston. And that's not totally true, because Janie is a lot more conservative, a lot more submissive to males than Zora Neale Hurston ever was. There's just enough differences that this really is a, a, a literary creation. But I think she kind of creates her own little system of how she uses mules and how she uses pear trees and uh, how she uses sunsets and what those meant in her life that I think it makes it valuable enough. So let's start off with talking about Janie as a young child because we start off with this free indirect discourse that we've talked about many times before where there's a narrator voice and then there's a character voice you know direct discourse and sometimes what happens is the narrator like the main character's voice almost just becomes the narrator sometimes and it kind of blurs lines in terms of how you trust that character in terms of what you know about that character and even in a story such as this which is ultimately kind of a coming of age, finding and validating yourself story. Maybe that's even a little bit meta with finding your own voice and how the narrator speaking for Janie and Janie eventually kind of starts talking for herself is kind of a meta play that Zora Neale Hurston might be kind of playing with through this piece. Yeah, and I think that starting off with kind of like this dream to the whole thing really adds to that as well, right? As you kind of set up the voices of men and women as we move into these different themes. It's right there smack dab in the middle of the story, or the very beginning of the story, and I like that. So let's start from the very beginning. We have a quote from the book that says, I was with them white children so much, I didn't know I wasn't white until I was around six years old. And she talks about this in her Dust Tracks on the Road autobiography, where she did grow up in a real town called Eatonville. Is that near to where you live, uh, it's about 45 minutes away, actually. Yeah. So Floridian readers will probably recognize some of these town names. And there actually is history behind, you know, its sister town, Maitland. Maitland was found and it was kind of like this combination of the white and black folk. And eventually the black folk under, you know, the first mayor of the town, Joe Clark, 
left and kind of created Eatonville, the first, well, one of the earlier settlements of, of, of actual um, fully black towns in terms of being uh, organized and uh, municipalitied. And it actually lived a very peaceful life. And it was the same thing with Zora Neale Hurston, where she moved there pretty early on. And she didn't really understand what it meant to be black because that's all she saw around her. She didn't really experience racism the way a lot of other black children did under Jim Crow laws of the time. Yeah, and I think that kind of adds a unique element to the story of Eatonville and this little collective of individuals and it speaks a lot to Janie as an individual of how she's going to grow through this story and it gives her a lot of depth of character and makes her kind of a little bit innocent and naive and that's something that I think Hurston is trying to speak to people as they read this story and it was kind of criticized for a little bit as well but now that we kind of look back on it we think wow she really was a master of kind of manipulating our feelings even this early into the story to kind of start sympathizing with this young girl that doesn't even realize that racism is a thing and isn't that a fair thing to discovering yourself that's a very big topic particularly for a lot of teenagers you know maybe some of them are looking at it oh assigned reading it's horrible hopefully you can find that there is absolute beauty in the message behind the story and beauty in the way that Zora Neale Hurston delivers it let's move into kind of this first marriage and young Janie growing up right she's she's growing up under nanny who experienced slavery firsthand, right? And she talks about it. Obviously, Leafy, uh, Janie's mother, and her were both attacked by white men creating Janie, which is going to, you know, cause her to maybe look a little bit lighter skin that's explored later on in the novel. But they're just just barely coming out of this trauma of, of, of racism and slavery, and Janie still sees its effects, basically, through her grandmother. And her grandmother's like, hey, you're 16, you're kissing a boy. We need to get you married right away, right? Because married is gonna is what's going to make you happy. And married means that you're safe. This is the values I'm going to stick into you, Janie, right? Yeah. And I, I love like right here in the beginning, Janie is kind of like a deer in headlights and doesn't kind of know what she should do because this is her grandmother and she respects her, but she isn't quite feeling it all the way either. And like you talked about earlier, Hurston sets up some of the symbology of the pear tree representing innocence. Every single marriage, I think, has comparisons to bees floating around the flowers. It's a very naturalistic way of what you're attracted to. In here, the nanny, you know, her grandmother, is putting on these materialistic needs and priorities that aren't very naturalistic. At that time, when she was 16, I think it was, and kissing, uh, was it Johnny? Yeah. She was just following her emotions, just going with the pure innocence idea view of love. And here comes, you know, the previous generations. It's like, no, 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 no. Wisen up, girl. This is what you need in your life. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the whole story itself is about self-discovery. And the key word there is self. And right in the beginning, she has her grandmother kind of telling her who she's going to be. And I think that Janie is starting to resent that already and thinking, all right, I have to respect my grandmother, respect my elders, but... This is my journey, and this is what I want to do. And I love that how Hurston has crafted this right at the beginning of the story of this self-discovery journey, because that's really what it is, right? Absolutely. And we fast forward to Logan Killix, where all of a sudden we're chopping wood and peeling potatoes. What the heck happened here? (laughs) Why did I marry this guy, Nanny? This is a terrible life. But I think we start to see, you know, Hurston had a very unique view on marriage, right? You know, she went through several marriages herself, if you didn't know. By the time she wrote this, she had already been married and separated. And um, 
we got to look at Zora's life here and look at her mother, who was very devout. You know, she was married to this Baptist, you know, priest, uh, minister. And what, what happens with him is he becomes unfaithful. He starts sleeping around, traveling, visiting other women. And, and her mother knew this. Lucy knew this the whole time. But she stayed by him, which maybe, you know, if you follow a lot of psychoanalysis, if you believe in psychoanalysis, she's going to reject that and kind of have the opposite effect, where Zora had very little uh, devotion to men the way that her mother did. And you see that in the way that she had been married and remarried and kind of follows her heart and, and emotions and love at the time. And you'll see kind of her explore a little bit of that, but make Janie a little bit more docile than I think Zora was. Yeah, and I think this is where sometimes people try to make that comparison between Zora and Janie, and that, you know, Zora had these very, very complex relationships in her life, and then she's maybe writing that a little bit into Janie. And we have a quote from the story that kind of semi-supports that, but I think it's more that Janie is trying to not have loneliness, and Zora Zora's way too strong of a woman for that, but the story says, quote, She knew now that marriage did not make love. Janie's first dream was dead, so she became a woman. That's pretty heartbreaking, and that's Zora, I think, saying something maybe about herself of the reality of relationships through Janie. So I can see the idea that this is somewhat inspirational for autobiography. autobiography. And I think people are, may approach this from different levels in terms of where you are in life, right? And maybe some people aren't as familiar with this era. But I think early on, Zora does a good job of this quote, which is why this book is so timeless, because quotes like this can bring that information to you very quickly. So the white man throw down the load and tell the black man to pick it up. He pick it up because he have to. And he don't tote it. He hand it to his woman folks. The black woman is the mule of the world, so far as I can see. So here we see one of Zora's main things. This is coming out after her Mules and Men, um, more nonfiction work. But she basically is kind of saying that the white man hands off work to the black man, the black man hands work off to the black woman, making the black woman the mule of the world, meaning crap rolls down hills and women, women are the most oppressed individuals in society is kind of what she's going at with this. Yeah, and more importantly, I mean, she's experiencing some of these things as a black woman for the first time and unbeknownst to her in her real life that this was a thing, right? And now she's seeing it. And I think she's writing about that. And I think she's trying to portray and say, look, you know, you may think your life is bad, but there's always somebody that has it worse off. If you look to what black women have to deal with of all the things from their men and husbands and men in their, you know, racial lives, and then why they're treated this way is because they're being poorly treated by other people in society. It's brilliantly done. And I think it really does evoke a lot of emotions from you. As I'm going through this, I'm thinking, man, these were terrible people. <laughs> they should learn to be better people. Well, and, and each husband almost has a different way of looking at it, right? Which is what makes this book so interesting because Logan, when he buys the mule, what does he buy the mule to do? To work. Oh, to, to work. Yeah, and he wants a wife to do the same thing. <laughs> He's going to get a nice size one that, that, that Janie's going to be able to handle. What a gentleman. And she actually received criticism from this about people are like, why are you comparing you know black women to mules? Isn't that offensive? And Zora's just like, well, you must not have grown up in the country. Mules were everywhere. They were in every family. Like They're very useful animals. Like it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. She had a much different upbringing than I think most people did. Well, if you can't learn from this, then that's why you're taking offense to it. 
is because are you the one that is seeing negative in this or portraying it as negative, then that says more about you than it does Hurston or Janie, I think. Well, let's talk about kind of what happens from here, right? So along comes Joe Starks, a guy that offers her the opposite of what she has right now. So she, we, you had that quote earlier where they talked about how now we realize marriage isn't love. You know, love doesn't come from marriage. And he says, if I was your man, I'd let you just sit on the porch all day and drink some tea, right? So he's offering... He's so condescending. I hate him. (laughs) I I bet you there's people that love, like are interested in Joe Stark's offer at first, but then they kind of fall off team Joe Stark's, especially as you get into the next few chapters. Oh, yeah. You will quickly. But he is he's specifically being positioned as the foil, where instead of buying a mule to work, he specifically buys the mule to rest, which is the promise he makes to Janie. And in the story, remember, there's some people that are like ridiculing that mule and he buys it just so that the mule can have some some rest, basically. So the mules are very consistently used between these men and how they treat Janie as well. I think Joe, too, kind of irked me because he he wants to be the hero, but he also wants recognition for it. So he thinks he's the knight in shining armor, but he just wants other people to believe that. So he he takes Janie as almost this arm candy and say, look, I saved this poor woman. I'm giving her a better life when it was just all for his own, you know, ego. Well, it's interesting, too, because I think that's that's sometimes some men. And I think Zora's basing this on, so I, I don't know if it's the mayor specifically, Joe Clark, but she grew up in this, this town where she would spend time on an actual general store porch listening to the men tell these stories. And, and you know, critics will talk about how that's kind of where Zora's natural gift and ability to, to perform storytelling originated from. And that's kind of how Eatonville was created too, right? You had these self-made men that are like, look, I'll do whatever I can to buy land from you so that I can create this, you know, one of the earlier settlements or, you know, municipalities of of black folk in America. And you had these guys that would be the postmaster, that would run the general store, that would run multiple businesses because it was a small town as it was coming up. And Zora's kind of crafting her own, it's a fictional Eatonville based on the real Eatonville. And this man the guy that is, you know, the self-made man that has to build, he's putting his pride before his own love, his ideals before his own values. These are the men that built towns like this. And I think she's kind of ridiculing in a sense what that what that does to a family, what that does to their personal relationships when they put these other materialistic and prideful things in front of actual relationships and um, meaningful experiences. No, definitely. I think that Hurston is saying this self-empowerment of Joe is destructive to their relationship and anybody that tries to emulate these other things instead of just being true to yourself, again, kind of that self-discovery of journey, is going to be hurting your family, community, church, whatever, because you're not being honest with who you truly are if you're trying to emulate someone else. And I think she even drafts other people in the town to kind of reinforce this. Because if you remember, there are other people in the town that are like trying to seduce Janie away from Joe Starks. And they talk about, you don't have enough money to seduce her away. So all of the men are almost playing into this materialistic, physical gains to attract security and wealth the same way that it worked for Nanny. But that's not what Janie wants, is it? 
No. And I think that the porch comes back that too, to kind of bring back to the idea of Hurston sitting on, you know, the general store steps here. That porch is kind of a symbol in the South for power. And you, you had a big house on the plantation. What do the big houses have? They have the porch out front with the rocking chairs where you sipped your iced tea and you watched over all of, you know, the people that you owned. That was a status symbol for these people. And it keeps reoccurring kind of through these middle chapters of the book. And I think that comes back to kind of represent that Joe Starks has it and you want it. Mm, that's a really good point. Let's talk about Janie's hair at this point, too, because Joe Starks, you'll notice, well, okay, for, let's, let's talk about Nanny first. She talked about even how her, her slave owner would play with her hair, let it sway out. What does Joe Starks do when he tries to take possession of Janie? Makes her cover it up, put it in this rag so that it's not out in front of all the men kind of display. How did you take the meaning of the hair in this novel? I think it's obviously a symbol of... um promiscuity i think it's a it's a power of women's um sexual power i think that's something that's kind of been through a lot of history uh that this is uh you know it's a status symbol you know the the lush thick hair the longer the hair uh that these women you know he doesn't want her to show off because it's his and it, it's something that he wants to control her uh you know because it, it identifies of kind of who they are you know i i completely felt the same way just in terms of that um one of our buddies jack the rambling raconteur i'll leave a link to his video down below he had a great talk too where he talked about how since Janie's father was a white man and her grandfather you know nanny's nanny's slave owner that attacked her was also a white man that her hair is all even almost even just described as a little bit straighter as a little bit, um, dis- you know, the color isn't as black. So so Janie isn't as black. And that obviously becomes a bigger idea later once they go to the Everglades. But he kind of brought up, too, that idea of, is she covering up, you know, is Joe covering up some of her non-blackness, in a sense, too? It's another interesting way to look at it, particularly when you think about how the slavery had all that intergenerational trauma with the shadow families that were created from sl- slave owners as well. Oh, I never thought about that. See, I just kind of took it as like the misogynistic viewpoint, but I didn't think of it as kind of the racial viewpoint. And I could see that because we've seen that in other stories as well, where the hair was described specific ways to kind of be, uh, you know, negative or racist or something. Yeah, I, I never really kind of picked up on that. Let's insert fact of the moment chime here right now. How many times was hair mentioned in this novel, Crypto? Um, I have to guess a number. It was 47 times. Oh, I was going to say like, I was going to say 40. It was covered, it was flowing, it was strangled with a ribbon, it was coming in, it was curly, it was flat. <laughs> it, re- it really goes to speak to, I think, women as a whole, but also culturally I've been explained that it is, it is much more important uh, as to how a woman's hair looks, particularly um, in, in the South, uh, is, is how it was looked upon. That there's you know things like this, little moments like this that I think some readers will see themselves in, and they'll see similar values that perhaps you know that we don't. This is our window into it, but it's just so beautiful the way Zora lays it out on the page. I guess it, it's an identity symbol, as we've kind of said, but it's also a way of expressing oneself for women. I think that's a good way to kind of think of it. And as a young girl, you may be able to identify that's the way you feel. And that can be a symbolic you know, item in this story that you see. Let's jump Love back it. to let's let's jump back to the relationship. So with Logan, if you'll remember, she's like, I'm gonna leave you, Logan. And he doesn't tell her to stop. 
right? All along their entire relationship, he's like, Janie, you go do this. Janie, you go do that. But he never told her to stop because I think this is part of Zora's, one of the colors that she paints with is men and women don't necessarily communicate the best, right? Now let's flash forward to where we are right now with Joe Starks and he's dying and we have this quote, you done lived with me for 20 years and you don't half know me at all. And you could have, but you was so busy worshiping the works of your own hands. And this mm. goes to our point earlier about how he was so prideful and worried about what he was creating. He was putting that in front of her. Did Joe Starks and Janie communicate any better than Logan did? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think that they both wanted two very different things out of life where Janie wanted love and a family and Joe just wanted to be white. So let's fast forward, okay? Zora Neale Hurston, in her real life, erased 10 years of her life, just kind of disappeared from the world for the most part, uh, performing odd jobs, comes back at like, uh, I think it was like 24 or 26. In order to finish her high school, she's got to pay for it. She ain't got no money. What's she do? Erases 10 years from her life, tells tells the state that she's 16 years old and goes to school <laughs> in her 20s in high school 10 years older than everyone else right i did not it, know that it's it's hysterical. so she's 26 like whoa, whoa, whoa let me get this straight she's 26 pretending to be 16 like in a movie or something yes and attending yes. high school and she's so energetic and so charismatic that mostly it was believed but there are some instances where teachers are kind of like mm. But they don't say anything, right? Because this is, you know, education is important and to be denied education is a big deal. So I think perhaps, you know, some people saw it as a good way for her to move forward. But let's, you know, look at her own life. She she continued to just kind of lose those years. Like they never came back really per se. She eventually married a man much younger named Percy Punter. And he became the archetype kind of for a lot of the values got injected into tea cake. Oh, we can't. Can we just stop? I don't want to go anymore. I don't want anymore. No, we can't talk about tea cake because I'll start crying. <laughs> uh, I think he was the only one I liked in the story. I mean, besides maybe Janie herself. I mean, Janie seems just so innocent. How can you not love her? But well, how can you not <sighs> like him? Because he's so playful. He's energetic. I know. He's, he's no, I love tea cake. And then he brings partnership where unlike if you remember, both Joe and Logan are like, Janie, this is what you're going to go do. They don't ask her. Janie, what would you like to... No, no, no. Janie, go chop that wood, shuck them potatoes. Janie, go work in that general store. Along comes tea cake of, Janie, I'm going to go work in the fields. Oh, do you want to work in the fields? He's the first one offering her a partnership in life. Yeah, that's what I was totally going to say. He wants a partner, not somebody to order around or somebody to show off. He wants a, a, a life mate that he can build something with. And I think that he probably had very similar, you know, ideas as a young teenage boy that she had, uh, you know, and he's much younger than her. So he's still maybe kind of in that ideology of his life of looking for true love and that, you know, a marriage is maybe something that can give that to him because, I mean, he's just, he's so likable. He's a natural leader and he's charismatic and people trust him and mm. oh, I don't, don't so, make me cry, Una. <laughs> so, so he's likable. He's charismatic. You can trust him. Is he mature? No, no. I mean, no. he's, he's what, like 15 years younger than her? He's a kid still. Well, and, and 
we fall in love with him the same way that Janie does because Janie is also finding herself through tea cake, through respect, through trust, you know, and, and that's part of the trust right away when he disappears that first day and comes back with like this gambling and guitar story. You're like, oh crap, is this going to be another repeat where as soon as she marries the guy, the overnight the guy changes into a nightmare. But they, they Oh, continue. but the guitar's funny, right? <laughs> they, they overcome it, not in a mature way, but they overcome it. But eventually we get to that scene where he hits her, right? Oh yeah. And I think a lot of readers are going to have problems with that and in the autobiography, yeah, trigger warning there for sure. Well, they, they they talk about in the autobiography too that that perhaps you know in the black community that there was more visible signs of violence, and they think that might have come as a learned activity from slavery, and perhaps that the beating was you know we gotta remember this is you know nineteen well I mean nineteen thirty seven when this came out yeah nineteen thirties nineteen twenties era men some men this was their voice was hitting i'm not saying it's correct i'm not saying it's appropriate but this is their way of expressing things and what does tea cake do as soon as he does it he goes and brags to people around town which is super upsetting to read particularly from a more modern sensibility standpoint but i think this is partly speaking to that inter so we saw Janie's intergenerational trauma earlier with you know potentially her hair her light skinness and we see it in the everglades when she goes to that restaurant right now we see tea cakes intergenerational trauma of learning violence from racism, perhaps, you know, being passed down over generations and stuff like that. But it's also a test and a warning to their relationship, right? Because right after this comes what? Yeah, this is where we get the uh, the hurricane event appear. Right. And and racism is racism is present but not the main thing in the point of the story i'm not saying this is the point of the story but this is how it pervades and they choose do we follow the local indigenous animals and peoples who are escaping or do we trust the white men that are sitting here still trying to make you know the money off of us before the hurricane comes and they sit there and they stay with with the white people trying to brave quote unquote this hurricane right yeah exactly and I think this hurricane is very representative also of that turning point where once tea cake hit her, here comes the storm. Here comes the the oncoming returning violence that we see generation after generation and, and trauma that we cause to each other to each other as human beings. And this is where he gets bit by the dog that caused the wild dog that basically causes him to lose his mind. And it's the ongoing it's the ongoing love that kept Janie there, even though she knew it wasn't the right choice. She was still making a decision to try to make something, I feel like, of this relationship. Yeah, for sure. I think it would kind of go back real quick to uh, the hitting part of... There's a few things that I kind of wanted to throw out there real quick is 1920s and the 30s, very different era. So you kind of have to take off your rose-colored glasses looking down upon these people from 2021. Not saying that it's right at all. You shouldn't hit anybody. You know, I, I don't think that you should ever try to solve things with your fists because there's always your words, which is a better option. But in this time period, that was their option, and there are no laws or rules or upbringing against this, so it's kind of hard to judge them on that. But also, I think that's something that well, is very well, different. Also, to, to that point, he's socially rewarded by his friends. Like, yeah, the macho man thing to do was to hit this lady, right? Like, he couldn't rise above his own pre- prejudices from his social community. Yeah, and and then in this time period, uh, you know, for most of human history, you know, men have been, you know, the dominant 
uh, you know, uh, the gender over women, and they not only lord it over them, but they're praised for it as well, like you said. But I also think that there's something here between them because Tea Cake is described as much darker than she is, and I think that he might resent her a little bit for that, and that's kind of heartbreaking of the flaw that Hurston writes into, uh, you know, Tea Cake's character is that I think that he's bitter that Janie is a, a light-skinned black woman, and he is a dark-skinned black man, and he sees that as a negative in himself because he's been taught that racism from the outside world, and she never really thought it was that big a deal. But in many black cultures, it, it, it is a big deal about the pigment level of your skin, which today we can look back as ridiculous, but or today we can look at that as ridiculous, but back then it meant a lot to them, you know, which is just heartbreaking, right? It is. And you had very small commentary here too, also from like the, the Booker T. Washington uh, with the restaurant owner and who she supported. And, you know, when this novel came out, Richard Wright, who, who always criticized her, was really harsh on this book not being political enough. You know, I mean, he was, <laughs> you look at his writing, he's 100% political, right? And, and that was a lot of what you know, black literature at the time was to try to change people's minds, to be doors into leading better or different lives. So white prose, is that what you maybe call that? Or black prose? Well, there's there's a word, but I don't say it. But um, <laughs> it's like, it's, 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 around, it's around chapter 10 and then this book. You can look it up. It's kind of interesting. But um, <laughs> but Zora was, you know, an anthropologist, right? She she was a studied person of black culture and history. And she does just such a wonderful job of wrapping up love and joy and and happiness and loss in a story and doesn't need to push the agenda, but she still represents the agenda in a sense too. That it's it's just the wonder and glory and beauty of this as it comes crashing in with these these white jurors that are judging, you know, they she says a quote in there where she says, like how how who are they to judge oh, you know, a black woman that they don't even know or how they live. She still wraps in enough of that that I can see why this has just been such a timeless piece to be based on true humans' emotions and desires and loss, but still pack enough of the truth of the political agenda that has existed and as people are working towards to to solve over time. Yeah, and I think that like the anthropologist thing is really interesting because, you know, she's studying the relationships of communities and how people cultures work together and evolve and change and can complement and be combative against each other. And this is something that I think she's trying to get out. And it's unfair for some of these hypercritical people because I don't think they understand truly what she's trying to do here is that during this time period, black culture is very much contained to the South. It's slowly moving out through the Harlem Renaissance and it, it makes its way up into New York and Chicago and Atlanta and Baltimore and other places as well. But I think she's one of the people that is, you know, helping that movement of getting these ideas of what does this truly mean? What is our culture? You know, why is it important to us? Why should we hold on to certain things? Why should we get rid of certain things? And how can we make our mark in the world? And I think that this story kind of encapsulates a lot of that as we see some of these different themes and elements of not just race and, and you know, relationships and love and everything else, but really that idea of, you know, these cultures blending together in the 1930s and 40s as whites and blacks and Hispanics and Native Americans and everybody, they're going to have to come together and learn to live together as a people because the world is not going back to 19 or 1860 to where 
everything is going to be segregated out. We're starting to be pushed and forced together. We're going to have to deal with it. And I think that she's giving us a guidebook to do that. So right here, right here, people. Zora Neale Hurston, playlist link down below. Go check out our talks. We're going to keep going through her works because we are absolutely in love with what is one of the greatest writers to ever live, Zora Neale Hurston. Let's move into our subjective wrap-up and ratings, which shouldn't mean anything to you guys other than <laughs> unless you follow the channel. Crypto, what are you going to give this one? Um, I'm going to give this one a 9.5. I really want to give it a 10, but I don't think it's quite perfect, and I think that's because of some of the trigger warning things in it. There is some cringe-worthy stuff in there that you should note. There's a few dry spells in here or there. Some of the characters, you can take them or leave them and stuff. Um, like, we never even talked about, you know, motorboats and a few others and stuff. And Stop the it just feels like. Stop <laughs> the bottom. I feel like some of the stuff is forced a little bit, so I can't give it a perfect, but it's really close. And I definitely think it's something that everybody should check out at least once. Right. It's gorgeous the way it's written to the vernacular. I think some people are like, oh, it's hard. Well, it's just kind of like this is a phonetic way of representing a very beautiful, you know, vernacular. I think um, if, if you have any issues with it, I have heard if you read it out loud, but also there's a, a free Ruby D recording of her recording the, the audiobook of this that you can listen to and read at the same time. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Beautiful, beautiful language. Uh, I'll go with a 9.5 as well. Hi highly recommended. Definitely a classic for a reason. Read it out loud in your worst Southern twang like Una yeah. does. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have so much more fun. It's so painful for <laughs> if you hear my twang. So, so guys, if you enjoy talks like this, we post videos every Monday and Thursday. We'd appreciate it if you were to join us on the literature adventure by subscribing. Una out. Peace. <laughs>